Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. On each episode of the Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. And right now, everyone's talking about watches. I think we're now at a compelling beginning, actually designing technology to be warm, to be truly personal. That was Jonathan Ive, Apple's Senior Vice President for Design, announcing the Apple Watch back in September. For the past couple of weeks, Johnny Ive has been showing up everywhere, beginning with a massive profile in the New Yorker magazine written by Ian Parker. I think there's a lot to say about Ive and the watch, but Jessica, as a designer and a writer, what did you think of that article as a piece of design writing? Well, I thought it was a masterful piece of writing. I don't know as a piece of design writing. Um, I, I guess I would have to say that, first of all, Jonathan Ive comes off sounding like an incredibly nice guy, a very thoughtful guy, someone who really cares about design for reasons that I think are really genuine uh, and heartfelt and, and hard won. He's, he's somebody who's incredibly detail conscience, conscious. He cares deeply about uh, his work at Apple. He's been there for many years. Um, there's a lot in the article about his relationship with Steve Jobs, who died in 2011, and he's kind of the, become the heir apparent in terms of carrying on the, um, the kind of uh, mission of design as this you know, and I say this lovingly, but it's it's really true. It is a fetishized kind of thing, the way design, the role design plays in that company. And the leadership they've been able to have uh, with design being the kind of leading, compelling reason we are all of us interested in Apple products. So I, I would say in, in, in some, it, it's an article about Apple. It's an article about Johnny Ive, but it's also a profile. It's a profile of one man and one man's indefatigable connection to and commitment to design in pursuit of some larger, longer-term goal, which I think one is led to believe at the conclusion of this article, he was really left kind of carrying the torch and moving forward uh, in terms of what, what Steve Jobs wanted to do. And Steve Jobs, who was not a designer, really was a designer. I mean, it definitely is, uh, first and foremost, a classic New Yorker profile. I think in this case, you know, it's interesting. The thing you said at the very end, I think I really sense running through the whole thing, that this was all almost a attempt to kind of almost do a seance style profile to to kind of with with the uh you know with the ghost of Steve Jobs using as his uh representative here you know in the earthly realm uh Johnny Ive as uh um you know as our agent in that seance you know there's some funny parts to that article it's a f- actually a pretty funny piece and one of the funniest made me laugh out loud when I was reading it was a moment where uh, the writer is interviewing someone. That person pauses for 25 seconds to answer a question, and Ian Parker observes that in that 25 seconds, Apple just made $50,000 in profit. Right. You're never not aware that this is a guy who's who's clearly responsible for an unbelievable amount of money at every single second. I mean, this is a company, uh, the, towards the end of last year, I think Apple became the first public company ever valued at $700 billion. So I think where it's succeeds, you're absolutely right, is in really painting a picture that's incredibly visual of a person and a person's pursuit of this perfect thing. 
Yeah, and, and timed, obviously, to the launch of several new products from Apple last week, including the watch, you know, which you started uh, um, talking about. And I think you were skeptical about it first, but now you're sort of a little bit more convinced about it or vice versa? Yeah. I wanted, I wanted so not to like the watch. There are so many things about the watch I don't like. I don't like the idea that Apple, who I, I turn to and believe in for things that are service-oriented, like my phone and my computer, and my email, the idea that they are going into luxury territory, which I think is already a word that is is just laden with complexity. And it feels very masculine to me, this watch. It looks very masculine to me. I'm deeply troubled by the rounded edges of the square. Um, there is a great <laughs> quote, actually, in the, I think it's actually in this article, um, in which he says that uh, it, it became very clear to them early, early on that there was no way that a circle could actually function as a container for information that's scrollable information. So you think about the degree to which the linearity, the XY axis of a readable screen. The reason your screen, the reason your computer isn't round is because you're reading it, you're scrolling it. And they felt pretty quickly that they needed to actually create this thing that was square, but it's not quite square, so they rounded the edges, which, you know, to me immediately invokes the notion of like, you know, a food court in a in a shopping <laughs> mall. It just uh, it feels like Formica. It doesn't feel like the apple I believe in and I know. And I just like a cafeteria tray, yeah. yeah exactly. It's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like trying to be a little like, you know, softer <laughs> around the edges, but it's still it's still a rectangle. It's still a piece of geometry. It felt non-committal to me. Oh, but, hey, hey, but wait a second. I mean, as a woman who um, wrote a entire book <laughs> of substantial length about round objects that actually convey enormous pieces of information, you can describe that book to our listeners. Uh, I will be happy um, to. I, I'd be curious to know if you if you sort of think they maybe gave up too early. I think they gave up too early. And I think that this thing, when you look at the videos, and we'll post one on our website, uh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of geometry, and they make it very compelling and very uh, desirable. But there's something a little weird about all those circles showing up on that square and becoming this, like, you know, army of polka dots <laughs> that disappear and, and come forward and come backward that feels a little paradoxical to me. And I find myself wondering, having spent... Uh, two years writing a book about circles where called, information... Called Reinve Reinventing the Wheel. Reinventing the Wheel. It was published by Princeton Architectural Press in 2002 and it's about the word for uh, changeable, movable, circular charts that goes back to the Middle Ages is volvels. It comes from the Italian uh, volvere, which means to turn. And the book, which is still out in paperback, I'm happy to say, uh, really looked at I was really interested at the time in, in these rotational devices that were designed uh, extreme, with extreme accuracy by people who did not have the computational aid of all the things we have today to create the algorithms that anticipate the things that need to be anticipated when you actually have something that turns and has little portals that, that reveal information underneath. These are concentric circles, and sometimes they're multiple concentric circles. So to me, just from a purely graphic mechanical standpoint, there's a bit of a disconnect between the scrolling screens of these informational capacities on the new watch. To come back to what I think your question was a few moments ago, Michael, as a woman, these watches feel very masculine to me. They really do. Even though they, and this was very smart, brought out Christy Turlington Burns to wear hers and talk sitting on a sofa in San Francisco, I think a week ago, there's a video uh, we can also post on our website that shows a beautiful woman who's also a runner and also a mother and has to manage her various activities, finds this watch a, a really useful appendage in her daily life of wearing other things that one assumes are not technologically driven.
Right. And I think um, you said before that, you know, this watch uh, sort of is clearly intended to be a fetish object, a luxury fetish object. But in some ways, the Apple commitment to design has always had to do with just kind of pushing everything one step further and making these their products real objects of desire. And I don't there are some people some people don't see it and sort of scorn Apple, you know, fanatics for being brainwashed and just sort of like believing everything Apple says. I'm not among them. You can tell that these things are done with this extra degree of, you know, obsessive, compulsive, maniacal care that almost every other company in the world either um, you know, just kind of will not go that extra mile for, or more likely kind of farms out and turns into mirror style for its own sake. I think, um, you know, what what Apple's done since uh, Steve Jobs returned and elevated uh, Ive to the design position he's had since um, is really kind of like trying to kind of make each of these things they sell function on this heartbreaking sort of level. And I think watches are, are jewelry, you know, Phones, iPhones aren't jewelry. iPods aren't jewelry. iMacs aren't jewelry. You know, iPads aren't jewelry. They're, they're, those are really purely information devices. You know, every single person that wears a watch is is sort of like it's an it's literally an accessory. And to some people, it's like the uh, one of the few pieces of jewelry they own. And some people, it's like the only piece of jewelry that they own. So, what do you think about this? There's a moment in the article where someone says, and I don't think it's Ive, but but someone makes the point that the job of the designer is to try to imagine what the world is going to be like in five or ten years. So if you look back at the technologies, we didn't think we needed iPads. Now we all have iPads. We didn't think we needed to swipe something. Now we're swiping. They've Apple, in conjunction with, of course, other people like Apple, they're not alone in this, but they certainly have been a leader in making us all realize that these behaviors can not only be learned and acquired, but can be very much connected to those desired artifacts that they then produce. So where do you think they're going with this, Michael, in terms of introducing something wearable and linking themselves to fashion and and hiring people in the fashion world and creating wearability? Is clothing next? Is housing next? Where do you think they're leading us with this? Um, well, if we're going to be Appleologists and sort of read the tea leaves that uh, Ian Parker has strewn before us here, I think all those are red herrings. And I think there's so much evidence that the very next thing they're going to introduce is an automobile uh, that I just think you may as well just hold your breath and wait for it. There's already been some intimations out there. And it makes so much sense, really. And and the, in terms of what um, our many of our listeners will know is this sort of notion of the trusted brand. I mean, we, we think yeah. of them, these feats of engineering, I mean, they, they look amazing. But they are feats of engineering. They're about a kind of capability. It is not just about the patina or the surface. Um, I have to say, and this is not clearly related to what we're talking about, but I've been watching House of Cards, um, and I know most people watched all of it the first day, but it's taken me a while. And I, I find it really stunningly strange that uh, the president uses a Mac. I know, I know. That's, uh, that, that's got and why bit, is that? That's got, why is that? It seems discordant, but also really compelling. I assume that's product placement. All evidence, uh, and there's been plenty of evidence in the past uh, week or so, as um, 
people have been talking about the use of technology in and around the White House. Uh, you know, all evidence points to the fact that it's like very antediluvian there, and uh, uh, people aren't likely to be snapping open Macs or iPhones or glancing at Apple Watches, but rather um, working their way through Blackberries, through 1997 versions of Blackberries, or even maybe um, the model phone that I carry, which is yes, a, which is a, let's a just motor, a, I don't Motorola. think that our listeners are aware that you are actually <laughs> no. somebody who does not carry a smartphone. Is that is that a question of like principle? with you what, what what explain this to me no it's like a question of um of addiction control i think i'm so distractible that if i was if i had a way of being aware every moment someone sent me an email or t- or or a message I, like my I, like i i don't think i could actually kind of like chew food or swallow or kind of like remember like you know just remember where I was at any moment of the day. So at this point, a long time ago, um, I acquired this indestructible and also unlosable clamshell flip phone that th- whatever you're picturing, this is even cruder than that. Um, no, I, I, I the- have to say, I confess, I was with you once at Pentagram and to demonstrate its indestructibility, you threw it across the conference room and it was fine. Yeah, no, no, it's no, it's it 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 falls apart, and you put it back together again. It's fantastic. It's like compared with uh, my iPad, which I do kind of have with me sometimes, which I've also dropped at least once and cracked at least once badly, and had to get the glass replaced. But this. Um, marvelous little clamshell phone you know there's just some i don't know there's i i i I don't know maybe i'm just insane or something i don't know maybe maybe this shouldn't be public and this should all be well i think we've just successfully (laughs) outed you but um having outed you uh, i think also uh, you could probably look at all the generations of iphones that you have not become addicted to and all the money you've saved that you can now buy one of those gold watches that costs i think seventeen thousand dollars now jessica um We've talked about the Apple Watch on a lot of different levels, um, but one thing that we haven't discussed and I haven't seen discussed anywhere is the way they actually like represent the product logo, which is the icon of the Apple, the Apple logo, the Apple symbol, and then the word watch in all capital letters in a sans serif capital letters. What, what do you, I have to admit, I find that like really, um, for every time I see it, it seems very jarring to me. What do you make of that? It's very jarring. I'm going to tell you why. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the fact that the baseline does not align with the baseline of the Apple. Typographically, it's too big. The word itself is too big. It's also in all caps. I know. Why is it all caps? Which is classic shouting, sort of visual parlance of shouting. Uh, It's not a beautiful uh, typeface. I'm sure it's the Apple typeface. I'm looking at that C right now. It doesn't have beautiful (laughs) curves. It would have been really nice for it to be quieter. I mean, Uh. because when you look at actually the videos online, um, it looks to me like typographically the, the spacing and the sizing and the, I mean, what's not to love about the jellyfish animating behind yeah. the logo. I mean, they mm. had me at the jellyfish. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that the jellyfish actually would make me forgive the fact that it's an edge with squared, with rounded edges, which I find really <laughs> appalling. Um, but I'm with you, Michael, on on the, the letter forms for the watch. Also, it's it's like, it feels like, uh, you know, NBC News watch, or like it's like the Sentinel watch. It's, it's some, There's something sort of screamingly scary about although, it. Although, although, now this, if you really are going to want to um, sort of read something into it, you know, if you're going for a fashion brand, I mean, picture the way fashion brands write their names, like Chanel, Tiffany, all these luxury brands, all these fashion brands, so often all capital letters. I wonder, I wonder if this is really meant to uh, evoke that world and sort of step away from the uh, the more functional world of uh, software and hardware. I did find myself wondering why could they have actually made that 
A disappear and put the apple where the A is? Jesus, really? Wow. Okay. I don't know. I was thinking, were they maybe thinking to maybe sort of, you know, I don't know, create something a little bit more subtle? Somebody did make the argument that they basically co-opted the, the one of the 26 letters of the of the Western alphabet, the letter I, as their as their kind of prefix into everything they make. And, uh, and do they and have he, the right and, to do and, that? And then here made a very deliberate choice not to use that I. Yeah, you're right. Apple it watch. must be deliberate. If you call it the I watch, it would seem like this kind of like weird, funny, strange, kooky watch. And I think they're really trying to make this just something that you feel very comfortable having on your wrist. So they take away the I. They just call it the watch. And that's it. But to come back to something that I've said that I thought was really, I think, very um, understandable for designers, he talked about the goal uh, of being something uh, that he wanted to create something he called the strangely familiar. And that to me was really very, uh, I think, uh, something universal that designers will respond to. So you want something that people can respond to and acknowledge and identify with, but you want to move it one step further. So then the designer becomes a kind of utopian uh, you know, somebody's reaching beyond, beyond the actual expectation and delivering something that not only is what you expect it to be, but maybe creates some opportunity for new kinds of behaviors to be attached to that which is usual or habitual or a daily regimen that, you know, whether it's running or keeping time or how you manage your phone book. Um, the question is, are you going to do it by looking at your wrist? Yeah, well, you know, what's funny is that um, in 92, when George H.W. Uh, Bush was debating Clinton, when they were running against each other for uh, president, uh, at one point during the debate, uh, Bush looked at his watch and it was, people zoomed in on that as being sort of like, you know, like just a sort of him signaling to the world that this guy was just going on and on. It was all boring boring and everything. And it really was seen as being like a, an emblematic moment. So I'm not sure that like, um, you know, looking at your, I, I guess it's like better than kind of like looking at and fidgeting with something in your lap underneath the table, which is what people do now in meetings when they want to check their email. I think that's a little kind of gross. But that's such a, that's <laughs> such a great example. I, I, I remember that now indelibly. It's like, it's so rude, yeah, right? Yeah. To look at your watch and it is rude to look, look at your iPhone, but I do think it's, I still think it's going to be very strange for someone to answer the phone by answering their wrist. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, we've got lots of examples of Dick Tracy and other spies doing it. So maybe, maybe it'll all seem very natural. Who knows? I mean, the one thing it's, uh, it's interesting, um, people do have this unshakable faith in Apple when they launch a significant thing that it's simply, you know, your only hope is to get out of the way. And, uh, and yet Google Glass wasn't that, but, right? Google Glass uh, was, if, if they yeah, had an Edsel, that was their Edsel. But, but Google Glass doesn't, I don't. I would argue that Google doesn't launch products the same way. They're always like in this continuous beta state where they're kind of like, you know, they're, 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 they're fiddling with this and fiddling with that and constantly sort of like maneuvering around this idea that something reaches an end point of perfection. I think partly because their main product is a, uh, you know, is an online interface as opposed to a piece of physical hardware. I think uh, in the history of... uh, of design, there's always been this interplay between designers and the clients and corporations they sought to influence. And we just lost a influential architect who 
exerted that pull over at least one big corporation. I'm talking about Michael Graves, whose relationship with Target and other big retailers actually uh, for many years was the first thing you would think of when you were thinking of design, consumer products could interrelate. Graves has a fa- really fascinating history. He uh, he began as a fairly radical architect, uh, one of a group that was legendarily called the New York Five, who were all seen as being modernists. They were also nicknamed the Whites because they tended to work entirely in white, kind of. Uh, and they happened to be white men. And they, happened, they happened to be white men, as so many. And they were uh, they were Peter Eisenman, uh, uh, Michael Graves, of course, Charles Guafme, John Haydick, um, who yeah. was at Cooper Union for many years, and Richard Meyer. Yeah, Richard Meyer. And and it's interesting because if, if you look at all those guys, um, uh, Graves is the one who actually, uh, you know, sort of diverged from that crowd and uh, uh, sort of discovered as he moved through the seventies and into the eighties that he just had this lyrical way of drawing and be- lyrical way of composing uh, architectural form uh, that, um, you know, got labeled fairly quickly postmodernism. Now, what's interesting is that um, I remember when postmodernism as practiced by Graves and his contemporaries was brand new. And I also remember that what it was following was the worst and most depressing sort of excesses of 70s brutalism. And, um, you know, it just seemed like a breath of fresh air that, the, you know, kind of classical virtue was being restored to architecture, you know, uh, buildings that look like buildings, doors that look like doors, the, uh, the, the, the restoration of color and figurative imaging in the way that architecture was conceived. And he was criticized for some of that, too. I mean, it was, it was, it was populist, right? So it was, I mean, this was Florida color palettes and sunshine and uh, the famous Alessi tea kettle that had the sort of little whistling bird at the end. And, and his break with the other four architects was... Uh, on a serious, more sort of serious level, a kind of theoretical break. He wasn't interested in theory. He was interested in design as a purveyor of something more far-reaching and, uh, again, not dumbed down. In many ways, he he was a sort of an Apple designer before Apple. I mean, he was really was an interesting kind of predecessor to that. In the case of uh, Graves and Target, he was quite frank about the fact that all he was doing, you know, what he's trying to do is just kind of use his ingenuity to bring a little bit of pleasure into people's lives as they wash the dishes or serve up the salad or poured themselves some uh, uh, some hot water to make some tea. By the time he um, he passed away, uh, you know his reputation probably wasn't at its highest point. But I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was revived. If he will be seen as a real pioneer, a bridge between um, you know the kind of uh, attitude about design that prevailed earlier and the way we think of it now with people like uh, uh, Jonathan Ive and companies like Apple being. Being, uh, the leading purveyors of it. One really interesting thing about Graves that um, uh, that was uh, less well known was that about a dozen years ago had a uh, spinal cord infection that paralyzed him from the waist down, and that. Um, it didn't stop him. It did not stop him. And more, it seemed to slow him down. No, it did not slow him down. I mean, he was like really, uh, you know, sharp. And those dozen years since uh, uh, saw, you know, enormous uh, productivity from him. What was interesting was that he did a lot of work on uh, healthcare design about, um, you know, and, 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 and is widely quoted in saying, um, you know, that good design can make people get better faster. It is a soul-sucking experience to sit in a 
hospital room and look at gurneys and whoever wrote that hospital rooms have to be beige and gray and boring and clunky and and the idea that he actually put as much effort into that as he did housing and color and things in the kitchen is really a testament I'm sure he'll be remembered for much more but but it's it's really great he's one of these many people who who worked until the very end and uh, he will be remembered for so much more Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find links to things we discussed, including a nice piece on the Michael Graves work that you probably don't know at designobserver.com. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Please tune in to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, our other podcast. A big thank you to MailChimp for sponsoring the observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. And our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Jessica. Talk to you next time. <laughs>